So we're going to continue in our series this morning that we've entitled The Backstory. You know, every year we come to this time of year, we know the Christmas story, we sing the Christmas hymns. Um, I'm sorry, I've confessed before in the past that uh, I'm, not a, uh, I'm not a Christmas uh, music kind of guy. Like, I, I like it again when I hear it for the first time every Christmas season, but by about the 10th, 15th, 20th time I've heard the songs, I just start... Uh, going blind, uh, listening to this kind of music. But I, but I do want to try to have a good attitude about that. And I do try to have that. But last night we were in the car as a family for three or four hours and, and the music was on and I'm already reaching my limit, uh, unfortunately on a personal level. But you know, the, the message is still good. The message feels repetitive, but it's still good. And so we're taking just kind of a different look at the story of Christmas this year because there's a backstory. There was uh, history that got us to that night in Bethlehem. There was historical prophecy that God fulfilled in detail that got us to that night in Bethlehem. And that's what we're trying to do throughout this entire series. And, you know, just remember Advent uh, by definition means the arrival of a notable person, event, or thing. And when we talk about an, the Advent at Christmas, we're talking about the arrival of a notable person. In fact, the most notable person in human history, his name's Jesus Christ. He accomplished something on a day in human history that we will sing about for eternity. He died for our sins and he rose again. This is why he was born to take care of the sin problem that was promised by God all the way back in Genesis 3.15 that he would take care of it and he did. He sent a savior to take care of it and he did it in full. When Jesus died, he yelled out from the cross, it is finished, paid in full. He's taking care of it. Hallelujah. That is the good news of the gospel. And so there's a backstory that gets us to that point. And this week, we want to look at the, uh, the involvement of angels. You know, they didn't just show up on the hillside in Bethlehem and, and put on a concert and then go home, right? They, they had been involved in this process Throughout time, in fact, there's another group of angels that were bad angels. We know them as demons that followed Satan and his revolt. And do you know they had a part in the backstory of Christmas as well? Do you know that they came multiple times within a hair's breadth chance of success to eliminate this promised deliverer from ever coming to the earth? And this is part of the backstory that we want to look at this week. But to introduce that, we've got to remember that the original backdrop of everything is this foundational prophecy found in Genesis 3.15. Let's go there and just read it again, Genesis 3.15. And this is following the worst mistake of mankind. If we bumped back up into Genesis 3, we would see this is where Adam and Eve took of the fruit of the knowledge of tree and, uh, of, I can't even talk, the knowledge of good and evil and ate of that fruit, and, and thereby suffered the consequence of sin. By the way, the consequence of sin has never changed from the day of, in the Garden of Eden till now, the, the wages of sin is death. That's what a savior has to save you from. He's saving you from the death penalty. This is what was going to be enacted upon Adam and Eve. And even there, after the worst mistake in mankind's history, solving the problem of death, God did not put that on their shoulders to solve. He put it on his shoulders. He's got big shoulders. He can handle big problems. This was a gargantuan problem that was, was introduced at the outset of human history. And what we learn in Genesis 3.15 is this, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent here, Satan, who's indwelling the serpent. We learn later in Revelation, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And we think, what in the world does that have to do with sin, solving the problem of sin? Well, that's the great thing about prophecy. We looked at that in week one. God filled in the details of this prophecy with further prophecy to show us exactly when this promised deliverer would do this, when he would, who, uh, who he was, how he would do it. How would he crush this serpent? How would he deliver this death blow? And we learn through the pages of human history that this man would be the son of God, born as a child, living a perfect life, dying on the cross for our sins and rising again. That's how God would do it. And he detailed that through fulfilled prophecy. But in this prophecy, we learn a couple of things. Real subtly, the physical descendant 
of the woman would be utilized by God to destroy the serpent. There would be a physical descendant. We also made this point because we built on it later in Isaiah 7, 14. Genesis 3, 15 only mentions that this physical descendant would be her seed, not their seed, already establishing the, the framework for the virgin birth, that he would be a physical descendant of the woman. And then the second thing, that we learn is that the serpent would some way harm the physical descendant of the woman, but that the physical descendant of the woman would ultimately be triumphant, delivering this death blow to his head. And again, we learn from the scriptures that that death blow delivered to the head of Satan happened on the day of the cross where the serpent hurt Jesus Christ in the sense of killing him physically, but what Jesus accomplished through that death completely destroyed the devil and the power of death and sin. And that was the good news of the gospel. Now, up until this point in time in this sermon series, we've only considered God's direct revelation through men, through human prophets. And we've looked at that through his word. This morning, we want to consider his communication through another group of servants of his, not human prophets, but angels. And we look at the word angel, we've got to understand that the word angel simply means messenger. That's what, that's what an angel is. An angel is a messenger of God. An angel is a servant messenger of God. In other words, the angels are, are only designed to communicate a message that God has given to them to communicate. Now, that's how it should work with human prophets too. But it doesn't always work that way with human prophets. Sometimes they come out with their own uh, stuff as we've seen through the course of, of human history and scriptural history. But one of the things that's really Interesting, as we tie in angelic involvement from the beginning of time, do you know that they have been anticipating the birth of the Messiah, this promised deliverer, since it was mentioned in Genesis 3.15? That means, let me put this in perspective too, because oftentimes uh, when people think, hold on, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll come back to that. Um, Because there's so much to cover this morning. But the angels both good and fallen, both good and bad. And when I say bad or fallen, we're talking about demons. Those are, those are simply fallen angels. Both sides have been active in this message, either spreading the message of the hope of the birth of the Messiah or trying to disrupt or prevent the birth of the Messiah. Both groups were, have been active in human history as part of the backstory leading to this night in Bethlehem. And we want to look at that this morning. In fact, the good angels actively anticipated the coming and the suffering of Messiah to see how he would accomplish salvation. Now, sometimes we think about these heavenly beings and we think that they know more than we do. And, and in some cases they do, right? Because they, they've seen more than we do, but they're not all knowing. They, they didn't know how God was going to do this. I, I picture it as God announces this prophecy in Genesis 3.15 that, that angels, if they, if they had a chin, would be like, huh, you know, how's that going to work out? How's he going to accomplish that? See, angels are not all-knowing. All God is all-knowing, but nobody else is all-knowing. Only God. That's what makes him unique. Angels didn't know everything. So they are actively, through the course of history, looking to see how God is going to do this thing and pull it off. And they're excited about it. How do I know that? Well, I'm going to bring up some verses on the board. You can turn with me if you can't see that. You can turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. This is verses 10 through 12. And and you know what's really fascinating about um, verses 10 through 12 is it says that the angels desire to look into these concepts of salvation and eternal inheritance. Like this blows them away. In fact, we learn in Ephesians 3 that God has, has um, began the church, is building his church, and that through the church of Jesus Christ, that means you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, through you, the angels are learning more and more about God's wisdom. Wow. How does he teach angels wisdom through us? I don't know. Mystery. Blows me away. But that's what the scriptures teach. Here what we see is incredible. First Peter 1 10 through 12, it says, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time 
the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed, speaking of the prophets, that not to themselves but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things, and notice that last phrase, which angels desire to look into. So do you know that throughout the course of human history from Genesis 3.15 till that night in Bethlehem, that angels were pumped up about the coming of the Messiah, that they were excited about that, that every prophecy given to man and recorded in God's word, they were putting together the puzzle pieces as they went. Can you imagine the excitement of Gabriel getting the assignment to go tell Mary, hey, it's on. Like, you're her. You're, can you imagine the excitement? He, he would have told the other, look, man, I'm getting sent. It's, it's happening. Right now, this generation, this is what the verse tells us. But you know, what's really sad about this is there were other things going on in the background trying to prevent this. And this is what we're going to look at this morning a little bit, this, this spiritual warfare that was happening kind of underneath our noses. We pick up little hints of it throughout the scriptures, but as we put together this list, I think it, it, if you've never thought of it this way, you, you might be blown away to know that the birth of Jesus Christ almost never happened because of this spiritual warfare that was happening behind the scenes. Now, some helpful history. And this is something to, you know, I know this is kind of a Captain Obvious statement for many of us, but angels were created. They have not always existed. They were created on a day in, in history. They, they didn't always exist like God. God is the only one who has always existed in three persons, the only one. And so angels were, were created. We learn about this in Colossians 1.16, although we don't get a lot of details. That's what we're lacking a lot is details on when, where, how, timing, that kind of thing. But we do know that their origin was none other than Jesus Christ. And see, this is why it was ridiculous. I'm kind of going on a side trail here. This is why it's ridiculous in the book of Colossians that they were beginning to worship angels instead of Jesus Christ. This is why it's ridiculous in the book of Hebrews that they were tempted to worship angels instead of Jesus Christ. Worshiping a creature, someone who's been created and pushing off the creator. This is what was the temptation because in their thinking, well, Jesus was a man. I saw him, I touched him, I was with him. And angels are these high and lofty beings. And what people didn't realize and what Colossians tells us is like, no, Jesus created them. You think angels are incredible? How about the one who spoke him into existence? How about that guy? That guy's pretty incredible. Colossians 1.16 says this, for by him, speaking of Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. That's where our angels are listed right there in those phrases. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things consist. And so it's clear from this passage that Jesus Christ created the angels. Now what becomes difficult is, is trying to understand the timing of their creation. Because the scripture, you know, the scripture doesn't always fill in every detail that we're interested in. And in fact, if you've ever wondered, you know, one day when I get to heaven, I want to ask God this question because I can't find it in the Bible. I'm so interested. Join the club. I mean, there's, there's lots of things that aren't detailed in scriptures that I would love to ask God the question, but there are some hints. And so turn with me to Job chapter 38 as it relates to the timing. Now, those of you who are looking for extreme detail here, you're going to be frustrated. It's not going to give us detail, but it does give us a hint as to when they were created. Job 38, four through seven, reads this. Now, now God is speaking to Job. This is why we kind of just get a subtle mention of the angels here um, at the end in verse seven. But notice what he's talking about with Job. He's asking him questions. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened or who laid its cornerstone? So he's talking about when did he create the earth? When did he lay the foundations? When did he stretch it out? 
So if we were to identify that as a scriptural reference, where are we going with that? Genesis 1, Genesis 1. But notice what he then says in verse 7. He's talking about when he laid the foundation of the earth. And then he says, at that event, it says, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So I don't know when the angels were created, but they were created in time to shout for joy at the laying of the foundation of the earth. So at some point before that, they were created. Again, that's as much detail, I think, as we can put together, unless there's some verse and second hesitations I haven't seen, you know, so um, that's not a book. So I, I, I don't know if there's more detail there. That's the best detail that I can come up with is that they existed at creation. And so they existed before the seven-day creation events in the account that we find in Genesis chapter one. And that would mean that they were in existence before that seven-day creation week. And when we see that the morning stars in verse seven sang together, all the sons of God shouted for joy, it's very important to just let that speak for itself when it uses the word all. Because we're talking about all of the angels. And you say, well, yeah, of course. But it gets more interesting when you realize that Lucifer was there as well. Lucifer, the fallen angel at this point of God laying the foundation was there singing joy. At this point, whatever uh, had entered his head regarding pride had not yet manifested itself to the point where he was ready to take action in in direct rebellion against God. Kind of just gives us this this timing, okay? So that's their their origin. But obviously, um, and at this point, all was well. All was, was fine. Everything was going the way it was designed to be. But we understand that a problem arises. Lucifer falls. And there's some effects that come out of this. Now, what we don't know, again, scripture is silent as how long did angelic harmony last? We don't know. The scripture doesn't tell us. The next kind of, um, if you want to say the next kind of timing that we get, we just know that at some point Lucifer got restless with his role. We know that by the time of creation on day six, the creation of man on day six, he had already fallen and he had taken one third of the angels with him. We don't exactly, where does that fit time frame? I wish I could tell you. That's a detail I want to know when I get to heaven. That's, that's all my list. I would just be curious. I'm a history guy. I would like to know when that all fits together. But these are the time frames that we can put together. Now, why did Lucifer fall? And this is very important because it, it speaks to his diabolical plan in this backstory leading up to the advent of Jesus Christ. We get some insight into that. If you'll turn with me to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14. And we'll keep your fingers loose this morning, flipping to different passages. Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, gives us, it records the mindset of Lucifer prior to his fall. And in verse 12, it says this, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, the son of the morning. How you are cut to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Stars of God is just a phrase used of the angels. He, he wants to exalt his throne above all of the angels. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And so we see that, that, that Isaiah records for us. Oftentimes we think that sin um, entered the, the universe, per se, through the sin of Adam and Eve. Well, it entered the universe through Satan. It entered the earth through Adam and Eve. And so this is when sin made its way into a sinless universe. And what's so crazy about this is this defiant act that we have recorded, which, by the way, where did it start? Did you pick that up in the text? He said it in his heart. He, internally, he started entertaining thoughts that, you know what? I could be the man. I could be the man. I mean, I'm looking over here. God's getting all the credit and praise. I mean, I'm not too shabby myself. Maybe I could do that. It started right here in his thinking, in his heart. He acts on it. Obviously, this began his tragic 
career. And what's crazy about it is that he made this decision in the full glow of the glory and goodness of God. He saw it, he witnessed it, he experienced it, and he still made the decision to rebel. It, it, is, just, it is just crazy. It's sad, it's tragic. And yet, this is what caused him to be enraged. His plan was discovered. He was basically kicked out or tossed out, if you will. He still had access um, to heaven, but he was tossed out. And what he did is he took his exact mindset that we have recorded in Isaiah 14, and that's how he lives his existence every day that he exists. Now, one day he's gonna be thrown into the lake of fire. That's gonna be a great day in the history of the universe. But he's still free, and, and he is focused his attention on basically disrupting God's plan any way possible. And what we see in human history is he just tried to defeat God at every turn. He still wants to take over. He still wants to be the boss. He still wants to have authority. And if you're ever just curious what that looks like manifested in human life, just watch politics. Just watch our politicians. Just grasping and clawing to authority just to be the boss. And I sit there and I look at it sometimes and I'm like, what's the point? What? So you get to be the boss, but it's like, that's what motivates people. That's what motivated Satan, still motivates Satan. You know, I believe that if you could speak to Satan, which I wouldn't recommend, but if you could speak to him, I still, you could tell him, have you read Revelation? And he would say, yeah, but I got a plan. I got a secret plan. I'm going to beat God. I, I bet he thinks he's still going to beat God. Even though he can read the end, that's how arrogant and prideful he is. That's how arrogant and prideful he is. Well, where was his first attack? By the way, in order to get to the highest level, what do you have to do to the person that's in the highest level? You got to take them down. So this is, this is Satan's plan throughout human history. First attack, Garden of Eden. Kicked out of God's presence, removed from God's service. What does he do? He schemes and plots against God's pinnacle of creation. He, he determines where is God's heart, where is God's focus, where is God's mind. He says, op, day six, that dude down there and the lady he made from his rib. That's my focus. And so he goes after Adam and Eve. And, and one of the reasons he could see this is because the scripture is clear. God made mankind special and unique in a variety of ways. Number one, Man was created in God's image. We learned that from Genesis 1.26. The other thing that's interesting and I think appeals to Lucifer at this point in history is this one as well. Man, if you'll notice in Genesis 1.26 through 28, man was given a dominion and authority over every creature on earth. And man was given authority to care for the earth. You see, this was part of the problem. This, this right here, I believe, got Satan's attention because what did he want? He wanted to be the boss. And now, not only was God still the boss, but now God has created something and now he's given the boss-ship to somebody else. He's given the leadership position to these, these, these men, this, this man and this woman, and Satan, I believe, is infuriated because he still wants the authority. And so he goes after that. He wanted the ability to rule over God's creation. So what does he come up? He comes up with a plan to deceive and trick Eve in order to take control, rulership, and authority over God's creation. And you know what? God's original plan was not for angels to rule over creation, let alone a fallen angel who had rebelled against him. But even his good angels that was not his design, that they would rule over his creation. He wanted man to rule over his creation. He wanted man to live a life of dependence upon him, ruling over what God had created. That was God's original design for his creation. And Satan came in and messed it all up. By the way, as we're going to see throughout the courses of, uh, of history, if we can summarize the Bible in a sentence or two, this is another reason for Genesis 3.15. Not just sending a savior to save us from our sins, but sending another man to rule over creation. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ is gonna do when he comes back 
a second time. He is going to rule over God's creation, the rightful ruler, the only one qualified, we learn in Revelation 4 and 5, to take the title deed to the earth, slam it down and say, this thing's mine. I, I own this place. I'm going to rule this place, and I'm going to do it right. What Adam failed to do, Jesus Christ is going to succeed in doing. And so God also had that in his mind, I believe, with the Genesis 3.15 prophecy. The last Adam will succeed by crushing Satan, where the first Adam failed in yielding his authority to Satan in the garden. So we got that to look forward to. Now, here's here's what's interesting about angelic involvement going forward. Satan deceives man and woman in the garden, and he thinks, and this is, what's, this is what I love. I love being on the winning side. It's just, it's just fun. Like, you know you're going to win. You ever watched, uh, like any of you that are sports fans, you ever watched an old sports game of one of your favorite teams and you knew that they were going to win? Did you get worried when they fell down by 14 points? You're like, Psh, not even worried. Give me some more nachos. I, I'm not even worried. Because I know they're going to come back. I know they're good. I know that Troy Aikman's about to throw a touchdown to Michael Irvin. I know that Leon Lett's about to recover a fumble and, and fumble it himself before he gets to the end zone, right? Like, I know what's going to happen because I know we're going to win. I know the end from the beginning. And, you know, Satan comes in, he, he usurps authority over Adam and Eve, and I can see him, you know, whew, one for me. And then God starts to speak, Genesis 3.15, and Satan's like, oh, man. Okay, counter move, counter move. Let me, let me start countering. And this is what we see, Satan's full-time diabolical plan going forward in the scriptures is to eliminate this promised deliverer. In fact, what we're gonna see from the scriptures is he either tried to eliminate or pollute the bloodline of the Messiah multiple times. We're gonna look at a list here. It's not a comprehensive list. It doesn't include all the diabolical things that he did, but it's going to establish a pattern in our thinking to see there was much more going on in biblical history before we get to the night where Jesus is born in Bethlehem. A lot of things going on. In fact, quite frankly, Jesus should have never been born. As much effort and energy as Satan put together with not only sinful man, but his minions of demons. He had some interesting plans to do this, and God met him at every pass, cut him off, and basically said, what's up? What else you got? And that's how he did it, and he, and he fulfilled it all the way through. And so let's look at a couple of these. By the way, this is why, by, why God says in Genesis 3.15, there will be enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. We're about to see this play out on the pages of Scripture. It started right after Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. I think Satan sees the promise. He sees Cain. He's like, no, no, that guy, I mean, judged based on the way he sacrificed things, like, no, 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 I don't think that's the promised delivery. He can't even, can't even get the instructions right, you know. But Abel, Abel brought a blood sacrifice. So what does Satan do? He moves Cain. He works with Cain's sin and he motivates Cain to murder his brother. In, in, in essence, thinking what? Oh, I've eliminated the bloodline. I've eliminated the, pro- the possibility of the promise to deliver. In fact, why, where do we get that? Well, we jump ahead to 1 John 3.12, and it says this, not as Cain, and then notice this phrase, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. See, Cain was satanically motivated to kill Abel. What was going on behind the scenes other than mur- introducing murder? I believe Satan is trying right there at the start to eliminate the messianic bloodline. He's trying to destroy that bloodline. So that's number one. That's in Genesis 4. That's right after Genesis 3.15. Then we jump to Genesis 6. Interesting. Let's go there. Let's read this one. This is uh, interesting. I probably say that word interesting a lot because this is one of the, this is a hotly debated passage, okay? So I, I recognize that. Um, I'm gonna provide you with my understanding of it quickly because this isn't the point of the passage. There are entire books written on this, so we'll zip through it. But Genesis 6, let's read it, one through four. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them 
that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, <clears throat> that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now, the phrase sons of God, that's part of the debated interpretation of this verse. But almost 100% of the time when that phrase is used in the Old Testament, it's speaking of angels, okay? So <clears throat> that causes other interesting issues with the passage, but let's just, we'll kind of go forward with that understanding. Verse three, and the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. So you can see why it's an interesting passage, right? Because if angels are procreating with women and they're producing giants, men of renown, that's a pretty interesting period in history. And you think, why is this even there? Why is this even recorded in history? Well, it seems to fit with Satan's diabolical plan to pollute the bloodline of the Messiah. And so even these events leading up to the flood, right? This is why he promises he's not, the spirit's not gonna strive with man for 120 years. In fact, what do we learn in verse five? Verse five says, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so what does Satan do in his diabolical plan? He tries to pollute the bloodline of the Messiah by sending demons, probably indwelling human men, to procreate with women to, to destroy any semblance of a, of a usable bloodline. I think this was part of his strategy. In fact, if we jump ahead to 2 Peter, go with me to 2 Peter and just hold your finger there. 2 Peter in chapter 2 it's interesting because I, I believe that Peter is talking about this event in Genesis 6. And notice the order that he uses here. In verse 4, 2 Peter 2, 4, he says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and then turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. Now, Peter's using these events to describe how false teachers are gonna be judged someday. He's just showing how in the past, people who have rebelled and rejected and taught falsely against God's word have been destroyed. And, and so he's using that, but notice the order there. Verse four fits with Genesis 6, one through four. Noah then fits Genesis 6 through 10, and then we've got Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. Same order there um, that we see in the book of Genesis. Not only that, but it seems to tie what the angels did in verse 4 with the sexual sins of Sodom. So this is why, again, there's other interpretations. I'm just giving you my reasons for why I see this here and why I see this fitting in Satan's diabolical plans. And so we learn in Genesis 6 that we've got this angelic cause for the flood. And then in Genesis 6, 5, we've got the human cause for the flood. God is annihilating sinful man also to preserve the bloodline of the Messiah, which he does through who? Noah and his son, Shem. And then he starts afresh right there with these, these you know, half, you know, whatever, the demon, human offspring that had started popping up. We're all annihilated by the flood and he can start fresh with the bloodline. Again, Satan hits and God touches him, right? He's, he bounces him off. We see another uh, diabolical attack. And this time Satan is using one of God's men, Abraham, who was chosen out of every Gentile in the world to, was given the Abrahamic covenant, this, this unconditional covenant that God would make a great nation out of him. And that, what? In his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And that caught Satan's attention. Okay, I need to destroy this guy. I need to go after this guy. And so what happens? Well, I believe Satan works with Abraham's own carnal and sinful fears in two situations that have an a potential impact on this bloodline, on this seed. What am I talking about? Well, Genesis 12 and Genesis 20, two times Abraham pawned his wife, Sarah, off to a Gentile king. Now, when he gave his wife to, to be in the Gentile king's harem, he didn't know he was gonna get her back. He, 
he didn't know. I mean, that was probably, okay, goodbye, and I'm going to move on with my life. So you can see, even through his carnality, his fear, his ideas of self-protection, Satan working behind the scenes to, again, destroy this possible bloodline. You can see how all of this is put together. And so he did it twice, of all things. He didn't even learn his lesson the first time around. He did it twice. Apple doesn't fall too far from the tree in Genesis 26 because Isaac does the same thing. Remember, Isaac was also identified as, as, as the progenitor of that seed, the one promised in Genesis 3.15. So he does the same thing. Again, I think Satan working uh, with his fear to do that. This is a big one. Exodus 1, and you see this through history, the, these, these, these nonsensical almost. And, and I say nonsensical because that's typically what politicians come up, come up with anyways. And in, in Exodus 1, you know, you've got this group of Israelites living peacefully among the Egyptians, and some politician looks over the hill and says, man, we better take care of these people. They're going to take us out one day. And that's exactly how politicians rule typically is through fear. And so they do it in Exodus 1. It's all the way back here. And what does Pharaoh do? Well, he says to the midwives, okay, every time there's a son born, kill him. Why just the sons, by the way? Again, who's behind, I mean, who's behind this diabolical mission? Satan is after that seed. He is after that male child. He wants to eliminate them from the earth. He wants to eliminate the people. By the way, the midwives are like, yeah, those, those Jewish women, I mean, they got... I mean, they're, they're, they're fire, man. They're just like, they just, they just go nuts. And, and when they give birth, they do it quick, man. They pop it out. They're not like Egyptian women. You know, they don't, these women don't need help. They know what they're doing. And so we can't get to these boys. So then what does he do? Okay, then just throw the boys in the Nile. If they deliver them, just throw them in the Nile. And so hence that introduces the story of Moses. But again, Satan's diabolical plot to eliminate, to wipe out this bloodline. A, a very kind of small, unknown story, 2 Kings 11. Queen Athalia tries to exterminate all the royal heirs, but we know that somebody had the frame of mind to take this young boy, Joash, and hide him. He, in fact, if we would have brought up the lineage from last week, we'd see this little boy, Joash, is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. So she protects that lineage, but she, Athalia, had had success in wiping out many of the other potential fits. And so, again, this satanic... Uh, diabolical mission. And then finally, if you know the book of, of Esther, what did Haman try to do? He tried to exterminate all the Jews. And if it wasn't for Esther in the king's harem, getting an ear with the king, that's exactly what would happen. The entire race would have been annihilated. And we'd be talking about Jewish people like we're talking about Jebusites. When's the last time you met a Jebusite? Got any neighbors that are Jebusites? No, I mean, they don't exist anymore. They've been wiped out, just like the Jews would have been wiped out had Haman succeeded. And yet God had Esther, that verse that's the theme of Esther for such a time as this, to protect not only the people, but who else? This bloodline, this seed that God had a plan for. Then we fast forward, even shortly after the birth of Jesus Christ, you know, Satan following this whole thing from a distance, following the announcement of angels, following Bethlehem, we get... In, in Matthew 2, 16 through 18, Herod is deceived by the wise men. Remember, they were going to go identify this king and then bring word back to Herod so that he could go do what? Worship him, right, is what he said he wanted to do. He was actually trying to figure out, okay, I'm going to get my laser scope on this kid and I'm going to take him out one day. And that's what he wanted to do. But he knows he's deceived. Verse 16, he was exceedingly angry and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and it's all, in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And so we see even immediately after the birth of Christ, Satan making another last-ditch effort to get rid of this seed. And he does it, and, and, and like I said, it's awesome to be on the winning side because God did something right before that. He got Joseph and Mary out of there to Egypt, and we read about that just a few verses up. So, so God is winning this fight 
all the way. But you see this, this angelic involvement, even leading up to the advent of Christ on the negative side, on the demonic side, trying to annihilate this man. So again, it's not the, a comprehensive list of it, but it gives you a picture, gives you an idea of the spiritual warfare that was going on, trying to eliminate this, this event that we celebrate. Now, one of the things we also see is that God used angels in his plan. And we see this in the announcement to Zacharias concerning Messiah's forerunner. And we won't read these just for sake of time, but you know these stories. Luke 1, 11 through 22, the forerunner of the Messiah was prophesied about in Isaiah 43. He would be a voice of one crying in the wilderness. He was designed to go before the Messiah and prepare the people to receive the Messiah when he showed up on scene. And we learn from the life of John the Baptist that God also gave John specific revelation as to how to identify the right one. Remember, he said at his baptism, he would be the one whom he would see the Holy Spirit descend as a dove, right? That was the one. And so John knew and could point him out to the nation. We also know that the forerunner of the Messiah was prophesied in Malachi 4 as one who would turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the father to the children. And so again, identified by Gabriel. Gabriel was busy here during this time in history because we're gonna see he appears again here in a second. But he, was, he appeared to Zacharias during his temple duties. Again, God using another form of communication to validate, verify this promised seed all the way uh, promised back in Genesis 3.15. We also see that Gabriel was used in the angelic announcement to Mary, the mother of Messiah. And this is... Um, what Leonard read for us during the scripture reading. So about six months later, Gabriel is put to another task. He communicates with Mary who lives in Nazareth and he makes some incredible promises to her. And, and, and there are promises that are incredible to anybody that knows the Old Testament. There's lots of language here that would have just drawn their attention back to these prophecies. The first one I wanna bring our attention to is you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus, by definition, means Savior, means Jehovah, his help. What would he save people from and who was he sent to save? That's a great question. We're going to save that for the angelic announcement to Joseph because he explains that a little bit. But by the way, if God thinks you need a Savior, take the rope. It's like they used to teach us in sales. If, if anyone offers you a piece of gum, take it because it's basically telling you your breath smells, Right? So if God sends a savior, then that means God knows something about you and I. That means, number one, we need saving. And number two, you can't save yourself. Because I don't send a lifeguard into a pool when a bunch of people are swimming. The only reason I would send a lifeguard in a pool is why? To save somebody who was drowning. See, God knew this going in. And so he uses very specific language. He also tells Mary that he will be great. Again, a reference back to Isaiah 9 six, I believe. He says that he'll be called the son of the highest. He also says he'll be called the son of God. Again, a child born, a son given, mighty counselor, everlasting father, the father of eternity. We see all of those descriptions in Isaiah 9, 6. And then finally, he says this, and this is just so huge for any Jew that understood the Old Testament is what we get here. He says, the Lord God will give him, speaking of Jesus, the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And if of his kingdom, there will be no end. And so the angel is basically taking Mary and he's saying, Mary, your child is the one that was prophesied about in the Davidic covenant. Your child was the one who was prophesied about all the way back in Genesis 3.15. This is the one I'm talking about. And so he, again, uses an angel to communicate this and tie the dots together for Mary. Now that Mary knows that she's pregnant, she needs some help convincing Joseph not to leave her. And we, we learn about that in Matthew because uh, there's an angelic announcement to Joseph. We see this in Matthew chapter one, and we will read this one. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth the son. You shall call his name Jesus, 
for he will save his people from their sins. And so, again, just following that story, Joseph finds out that she's pregnant. And, and Mary tells him, yeah, it's, you know, it's by the Holy Spirit. It's by God himself. And it's like, man, that just doesn't go over very well in, an, in a normal relationship. I mean, that's really hard to believe, right? That's the most unique story in all of human history. Joseph just didn't know at the time that it was true. It was actually a true story. She was lying to him. So he decides not to embarrass her publicly. In fact, by, by not doing it publicly, he, he spared her life according to Mosaic law. She would have been stoned as an adulterer. Now, they didn't do that a lot in the first century. So she, her life may not have been in danger, but still he decides to do it privately. He had really three options there. He could have divorced her privately, not made a big deal about it, not made it public. Um, he could have done this big public you know, embarrassment of her, or he could have just stayed with her. Those were really his three options. He chose... The, the most gracious way to handle the situation based on the information he had. I'm just gonna put her away quietly. But the angel, uh, by the way, not, not Gabriel here. We're not, it could be Gabriel. He's not mentioned. No, no name is given, but an angel appears and tells Joseph a couple things. First, don't be afraid to take Mary, your wife. Interesting that he might be afraid to take her. That's kind of a, an interesting phraseology. He says, why he would be afraid, we're not told. We're not told why he would be afraid. It may have been if he viewed her as committing adultery, if he hadn't reported her, he may have felt like he was complicit in her sin and he might receive consequences for that. That might be why he would have been afraid. Or it might've just been like a lot of people could, right? He might've just been embarrassed. You know, just here I am, I'm marrying this woman. She's pregnant. You know, the baby's not mine. Everyone's gonna talk. And, and by the way, did people talk about that? Yeah, I mean, you see the Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees in John 8. They're like, we weren't born of fornication. <laughs> Basically saying, you were. <laughs> so people knew. People knew the story. And, and probably like most people, they're like, yeah, whatever, Mary. Sure, that's how that worked out. You know, and just really sarcastic. So you could understand why he might be embarrassed or fearful in that sense. But notice also what the angel tells him. She will bring forth a son, you shall call his name Jesus, which means savior, for he will save his people from their sins. And this is where we get this angelic revelation, who this son would save, his people. Now, specifically, why is he talking about Jewish people here? Well, we're going to look at that in a second. And what would he save his people from? Their sins. Now, that's kind of confusing because they got a temple set up, right? They got a sacrificial system set up. Why do they need saving from their sins? That's a great, I'm glad you asked that question. That's a good question because there's distinctions made in the Old Testament that's very important. First of all, notice this point. It's the fulfillment of the Messiah to his people. That was promised. In fact, forgiveness of sins was promised in the new covenant we find in Jeremiah 31, that that's where they would receive forgiveness of sins. And here's the distinction I think the angel's making here, and it's so important Understand that all of the blood that was shed in the Old Testament merely covered sin temporarily. And then if I left as a Jew, left the tabernacle compound or the temple compound and I sinned again, I had to come back by faith and offer a sacrifice for my sins to be atoned for or covered again. And it was temporary. It only lasted as long as my next need to come back and sacrifice. And this is why the writer of Hebrews so eloquently puts that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. But what did John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, say about Jesus Christ in John chapter one? He looks at Jesus and he says, behold the lamb of God who does what? He takes away the sin of the world. He said, Jesus accomplished something that the temple sacrifices could never accomplish. They could merely cover sin. Jesus crumpled them up and threw them out the building. He got completely rid of sin. And this is why the, the Bible is so clear that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he paid it in full. You have eternal life and you have forgiveness of sins because they are not even attached to you anymore. There's no way, past, present, or future, you could ever do something that would ever cause you to have to pay the penalty for those sins ever again. Why? Because he paid it in full. 
And if the bill has been paid, why are you reaching into your wallet for a dollar bill? Just leave. The bill's been paid. Jesus paid it in full. That's the good news of even the message. Now we've got one more view of the angels or one more use of the angels in God's plan. And it's when he announces to the shepherds in Bethlehem. And next week, we're gonna spend an entire message looking at these shepherds and looking at this announcement. It's, it's incredible that he would appear to them, that he would send an angel to them because shepherds were just like blue collar workers. You, know, you even think of David's life, right? He was like the little runt of the family. They're like, yeah, you just go out and take care of the sheep. You know, it's just kind of a look down upon profession. And yet God chose to send his, his angelic messengers to them. And so we see this incredible backstory. And I think one of the things I want to close with this morning is this. Just a reminder, two things. God, throughout human history, leading up to this event that we celebrate called Christmas, had a desire to communicate to each one of us. He recorded that through human prophets in his word. And now we see the angelic uh, communication to other human beings to validate, verify who this Messiah would be and what he would do. And God is not trying to hide that from anybody. That's why I, years ago, I, I, I remember somebody, I was, had just shared the gospel with somebody and a, and a woman accosted me and she says, I heard what you told that boy. You told him he was going to hell. And I said, that's not what I told him at all. I told him he didn't have to go to hell. I told him there was a way that he wouldn't have to face the judgment of God. That's my message. That's the message that I proclaim is we've got a savior who died for your sins and rose again. God doesn't want anybody to go to hell, but you'll go there if you reject his only solution. That's what those scriptures teach, but no one has to. God made a way to save everybody. You don't have to be white, black, rich, poor. You don't have to live in a certain part of the world. It is for whosoever will believe in God's solution. That's the answer. So God goes out of his way to communicate, make it clear, try to persuade and convince each one who hears the message that they can put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. You're not hedging your bets. You're going all in on Jesus Christ and just relying upon what he did for you, convinced that it was enough to please God the Father. So he communicates. He communicated through human prophets. He communicated through angels. And, um, you know, one of the other things that's just so fascinating about our God is we don't think in terms of this because we are, we are the, the experts of the contingency plan. Everything in life that we do, we often plan two or three or four contingencies. Don't have, we're about to do it at Christmas. We have people over we're buying this food. Well, what if we don't have enough? Well, we'll just pull out the checks mix and we'll, I mean, we, we got contingencies upon contingencies. Well, let's just buy some extra soda. If we run out of drinks, we can kind of pull. We, we're always contingency plans. That's the great thing about your God. He didn't have a contingency plan. Jesus was plan A, plan B, plan C. In fact, he never got to plan B. He just Jesus was plan A. And then he executed it in such a beautiful way. And that's what we celebrate this time of year. Let's just close there with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you. Your plan is awesome. You're awesome. You're big and we can trust you. We want to just see in your word this overwhelming evidence of persuasion that we can trust you. Not only for our eternal destiny, we can trust you in our day-to-day life. I know every one of us stepping into this room this morning has something going on or we've had something going on, or we're about to have something going on. And so I, I know that each one of us, you desire to take us each by the hand and guide and lead us through life. And may we just look to you and learn what that means as we walk with you day to day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.